Welcome to the Freedom Fridays podcast with me, your host, Pete Clark, the Whispers Guy. Work seems to expand to the time that we give it. And I've been investing my time, occasionally on a Friday, to explore how we use our time, our energy, our attention, and the impact it has on our identity. I've been exploring over season one, some of the mindset shifts in the handcuffs of I have to, to the freedom of I choose to. And I've shared some conversations, some tips, some tools about how you might want to invest your own time, your own energy, your own attention, how you might want to, if you choose to, make some changes to your identity, how you might have freedom from I have to and design a life around I choose to. If that's of interest to you, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to this week's episode of the Freedom Fridays podcast, where I have a, a, a guest who's been on before, and now it just feels so important to have Dr. Christy Goodwin on the podcast today. Hi, Christy. How are you? Great. Great to be here. Thank you for this opportunity. You're welcome. And uh, just for the listeners, Christy and I probably live about 100 metres from each other. <laughs> but have actually never met physically, but we've just connected. Christy knows friends of my friends of her friends and so on. So we're probably only one degree of separation. Literally and metaphorically. <laughs> yeah, metaphorically. Um, so Christy, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the podcast was um, rather than me asking you a big open question, I've, I'm going to give you the question. And it's all this idea that we're screens and digital has become ubiquitous in our lives and you have written a book called dear digital we have to talk i'm going to dive into some of that but for me the connection between freedom fridays is this most of us are probably seeking some freedom from our digital addiction let's call it that and i'm going to ask you some things about that First of all, before we even dive into that, I'm interested, would you just share, how did you come to this place? How did you get interested? Did you fall into it? Were you a computer geek when you were two? How did you get into this? No, I was a, a real uh, digital like Luddite. I uh, finished university and I made one PowerPoint presentation in my entire um, four years of undergraduate study. And in postgraduate study, I did the bare minimum, could manage a Word document and some endnotes when I was doing a thesis. Um, and I was a teacher um, originally, and then I became an academic. And my research was really interested in how technology was impacting our kids and teens. So my initial career was spent as, firstly, a teacher turned academic and then as a speaker um, and somebody who was studying the impact that technology was having on kids and teens. And I think for years, many of us have adult, as adults have wagged the finger at young people who I refer to as screenagers and said they're addicted, they can't put it down. And I think as adults, we fail to look in the mirror and examine our digital habits. And we often, as adults, justify our digital dependencies, um, our digital reliance, saying we need it for work or I'm, I'm ordering the groceries or I'm paying a bill. But I think the harsh reality is that over time, we as adults have developed some unhealthy, unsustainable digital habits. And it really was the catalyst for me writing this book was an accident that I had with my son, who was about 15 months at the time. I became dig so digitally distracted 
distracted, I opened the lid on my laptop to send one email. But I don't know if this happens to you, Pete, um, but you see that awful bold red icon declaring, you know, you've got 144 unread emails. And I went into the digital vortex. I wasn't supervising my son and my son fell off the lounge face first onto the floor requiring urgent hospitalization. And I realized at that point in time, even though I was somebody who was supposed to be an expert, somebody who researches and studies how technology is impacting kids and teens, I realized that as an adult, I wasn't immune to the digital pool. You know, I get sucked into the digital vortex. I went in to sort of triage that avalanche of emails and I became so distracted that I didn't watch my son. And that really was the catalyst for me to say, hang on, all of us are struggling with this. And as adults, um, it, I think in the last few years, given distributed work teams that we now have hybrid work, we have become even more digitally dependent than we have ever been professionally and personally. And I am worried, as you said in the intro, we've become slaves to our screens. I don't think we control the technology. If I'm really honest, I think in many instances, technology controls us. We salivate like Pavlov's dogs every time we get a, an email notification or an alert on our phone. Like we, we can't switch it off. We're taking our phones into the bathroom. You know, there's a name called toilet tweeting. We are just so attached. And I think it's having a really detrimental impact. No, thank you. I mean, that that's all we need to hear, right? That's, that's Sorry, it. That was a long-winded rant. That's, that's but... all, we, all, all we need to hear. Um, has Billy forgiven you? Uh, he has. Um, Billy still to this day, though, I will confess, has a significant pronounced scar on his lip. And every day as a mother, oh. it is a tangible reminder of how, you know, and there's. I've even written about technoglect or Maggie Dent talks about digital abandonment. So it's a concrete reminder of me. But to ease my mother's guilt, I wanted to declare on this podcast that he'd actually split his um, lip open two weeks earlier when my husband was dutifully supervising him. So please do not think I'm a neglectful mother. Um, on that instance, I certainly was. Um, but I'm just going to suggest that the reason it was such a serious accident was that he was just reopening an existing wound. <laughs> please go with that narrative with me. So on that, have you forgiven yourself? In some ways, yes. And and do you know, like I could I could relive that experience and be grateful that it wasn't a more dire situation. Yeah. You know, there are there are situations throughout the world now where children are literally having very serious accidents and fatalities where parents have been digitally distracted. So I'm grateful from the perspective that it it was serious enough to basically shake me by the shoulders and use that as a catalyst. You know, for so long I'd been fixated on how technology was impacting our kids and teens, and I hadn't even examined my digital habits. So I've used it more or less as the impetus to say this is an, an issue facing all of us. I often say none of us are immune to the digital pool. You know, we all get drawn or sucked into that digital vortex and it's not all our fault. I really want to point that out. Um, there's nothing wrong with you. You're not probably necessary, necessarily clinically addicted, but we all get drawn in. And I, I think that for me has been the opportunity to say, can we do better? What can we do to take back control of tech um, so we're not slaves to the screen? Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm glad you no longer feel as guilty because I, I get the kind yeah. of parental thing. And, and I'd be exactly the same in the world that I exist in and all the stuff that I've read. You know, I'm meant to know better. Right? You're meant to know better, right? Totally. Um, it's definitely the cobbler's shoes. I, I still feel demotivated sometimes. I still go, oh, I can't be bothered. And and yeah. you should, and it becomes a bit of a double-edged sword. I then beat myself up more because yeah. I'm meant to know better. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I live by Mayor Angelou saying that when you know better, you do better. And for me, it was a, enough of a serious accident for me to say, I need to do better. Like I now know the, the dire implications firsthand because it's one thing to talk about something. There's one thing to read research and science or to hear a news report. But until you've had that tangible lived experience where it literally is that shaking of the shoulders to say, come on, like you're not going to get a second chance perhaps next time. Um, we, I think, just need to use this as an opportunity to to question I think um, we don't have to change everything but at least question the role that tech is having in our lives and whether it's serving us or enslaving us uh-huh. so it sounds like you had a bit of a 21st whisper then yeah I did I did <laughs> it became so much a little bit more than a whisper at times yeah yeah, um, just a, yeah. yeah. um so your book um Dear, dear Digital, we need to talk, which is a great title. I love the title. Um, what it made me think of, though, is um, <laughs> some of us might have experienced relationships in the past where we go, Christy, uh, we need to talk. Uh, it's <laughs> not you. It's me. But really, it's you. But I'm saying it's me because I don't <laughs> want you to feel bad and all that. Is that what that's referencing? As in, we need it to is- talk to digital to say it's digital, but really, it's me. I, I think it's a bit of both. And the reality is, you know, the reason that we do get drawn into the online world is that there are some very persuasive design techniques that tech companies have deployed. And we've been quick again to point the finger and criticise social media companies, you know, the infinite scroll that, that traps us into something that I call the state of insufficiency. You know, the use of the red, you know, a red notification bubble is a psychological trigger for urgency and importance. The fact that you get a metric declaring how many Teams notifications you've got to triage or how many unread emails, you know, they're all very clever design techniques that that draw us in. So in part, it definitely is the fault of technology. And I don't think we should deflect that responsibility. Um, but it's also our professional use of technology, you know, Teams, Slack, um, emails, again, really persuasive techniques that draw us in. But the other part of the equation, and this is really where I want to empower people to say, yes, we can lament the fact that technology is appealing, um, that it's addictive, that it draws us in. But what's within our locus of control? What can we do to tame our tech habits? And that's where I want to try and shift the dialogue and say, there are, and in the book, what I share is what I call a menu of micro habits. There are small little adjustments that we can all do um, to take back that control and to certainly use. It's not a, a book that says do a digital detox. It's not a book that says break up with email or cancel your Netflix subscription. It's all about how can we use it, but use it in ways that works for us rather than against us. So it's a little bit of both. I'm, I'm blaming the tech, but also saying, come on, let's step up to the plate and take some responsibility as well. And, and I know it's not lost on you, it's certainly not lost on me, and you've mentioned this in your book, uh, which we will reference in the show notes for anyone that's interested, and I thoroughly recommend people buy 10 copies and give it to nine of your best friends and read Doggy or your one. Uh, it's not lost on both of us that we're actually doing this digitally. Yes, absolutely. And that's, you know, I think that technology plays a really pivotal role in our lives. And whether we love it or loathe it, it's here to stay. You know, we're not going to take back the internet. We're not going to give up social media. We're not going to go back, you know, to ringing somebody's secretary to organise a meeting. I mean, <laughs> life has moved on. Life is different. And it's it's it can be a really incredible thing. So it's not a book that demonises technology. I couldn't do the work that I do without it. But it's all about saying, let, let's use it in sustainable ways, because I believe 
And we are seeing this rates of burnout, rates of stress and exhaustion are through the roof at the moment. And unfortunately, Australians are leading the the, the globe in terms of rates of burnout at both an employee and manager level. This is a huge problem. And I believe one of the chief, it's certainly not the only reason, but one of the chief contributing factors to our depletion, our stress, our exhaustion and burnout is that we're using technology in ways that are completely incongruent with how we're designed as humans. Yeah. And that's the crux of the book. It's just saying, look, this is what's happening and this is what we can do to try and rectify the situation. There was an article on um, BBC Work Life, which has got some interesting articles and videos um, uh, posing the question. And I know that the question is designed to get us to read the article and it worked <laughs> the, when it said, is it even possible to digitally detox anymore, right? Given what you've said, how ubiquitous it is. And it referenced uh, the Salesforce CEO, Mark Benioff, who took a 10 day retreat and you know digitally detox for 10 days. Well, good on him. I, I can't afford that. I'm not sure you can with schools and this, that, and keeping in touch with the mum. I mean, you know, there's obviously many, many benefits to it. And yet the full detox, it's actually reassuring to hear you say, that's not what you're suggesting. It's not like, you know, oh. just give it all up. Yeah, and I think if anything, that story illustrated, I'm familiar with the story illustrated, the privileged position of those people who espouse do a digital detox. For most of us mere mortals, we do not have the luxury of a a massive team of people who can pick up the slack. You know, as a small business owner myself, if I was to go offline for 10 days, I would either have to do copious quantities of work before I left for that 10 days and there'd be certainly a catch-up period afterwards. But the other thing that's important to note is that not only is it a privileged position to do a detox, but the research actually tells us they don't work. They don't create long-term sustainable change. It's a bit like a a juice detox or a a detox that people do. There's almost a yo-yo effect. It creates almost like a binge and a purge cycle. So we go offline and then we come back and we have to catch up on the extra emails and the extra Teams messages So it doesn't create sustainable change. What the research is telling us is that if we try to reduce or crowd out our excessive use of technology, um, then that can have long-term sustainable um, habits and long-term sustainable changes as opposed to just doing a blanket detox or removing it completely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Obviously, in my domain, I'm speaking more about, which I think there's a obvious connection here you know mindset leadership comms teams um and i ask people about you know how long does it take to create a habit or even a new habit because they're more familiar with that term and it's amazing the answers you get in terms of oh is it 21 days oh no i think bg fog it's 60 60 210 and i kind of go yep well here's the answer the good news and the bad is it takes forever yeah everyone's face drops what forever Brushing your teeth is an example, right? That's a habit you probably do, right? If you stop doing it, yep. you lose the habit. So how long do you keep brushing your Oh, forever. But yeah, that's what you do anyway. Yeah. And so just that realization that it's not a task, right? Once I can, once I've got the habit, I can set and forget. Yeah. And not yet, but I do want to get into GPT stuff in a second. It's just going to get more and more and more and more. So we have to find ways, I think, of doing this, as you've said, intentionally forever. Mm. Yep. Yep. And, and it is a really long time. And it is. 
Yeah, it's 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 complicated. Like it it really is. And as as humans, I often say we're not that complicated. We have some basic neurobiological needs. Um, you know, we need to sleep, we need to move, we need to connect, um, we need some you know sunlight. Um, there are some basic biological needs that we have. But what's happening is that our relationship with technology is impacting all of those biological needs and that's why I think we're seeing some of these changes and that is also why these habits are hard to break if I if I was to say the one reason we find creating good digital habits or I refer to them as our digital guardrails the reason that so many of us struggle to um you know it's we'll often go off with good intentions you know I'm not going to check social media first thing in the morning or I'm going to have a, a digital bedtime and I'm not going to check devices at night but I think the one of the chief reasons why it creeps back in and those unhealthy habits come back in is because technology, professional and personal use of technology, has been designed to meet our most basic human psychological need. We are biologically designed to connect and belong. And let's face it, that's what technology does, whether it's good or bad. You know, this is why social media has become so incredibly popular. For parents listening, this is why multiplayer video games, group chats and social media plays a pivotal role in your young person's life. This is why we can't go on holidays and go laptopless as adults because we feel like we've just got to check our emails. You know, a study came out at the end of last year published by Slack that said that the vast majority of adults who were taking annual leave over the, the summer period last year were planning on still checking emails because the thought of coming back to work with a, a bulging inbox was enough to deter them from not having that, that break. So we have to, to, to examine these habits and I think do better where we can. Yeah. Without a doubt, <laughs> it's just, it's incredible. It's incredible how smart the technology has become and ubiquitous and unconscious and without us even thinking about it. My, my a slight kind of a parallel thought, it's interesting, those basic humanities. My son said to me last night, um, he'd been listening to some podcasts. I think he'd listened to the diary of a CEO, Stephen Bartlett, with um, Matthew Walker, the sleep guy. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, for as far as we can tell, out of all of humanity, however long that's been in existence, 60, 80,000 years, wherever you read and believe, we still haven't adapted to not need sleep. Yes. It's like, yeah. oh, hang on a minute, that's just, that's a bit of a smack in the, yeah, we haven't adapted, we still need that basic need. Yeah, and, and now it seems to be disrupting that. It really is. And often, you know, we I think many of your listeners would have heard of the impact of blue light. We know blue light delays the onset of sleep. Basically, what happens is the blue light hits our pineal gland that makes the sleep hormone melatonin. So when we're on a blue lit screen, it tricks our brain into thinking it's time to stay awake and alert. It's not time to produce melatonin that will help you fall asleep. So we often find it harder to fall asleep if we've been on our phones or laptops or smaller size screens, usually before we go to sleep. But the problem is even amplified now because we know that if we've been on a device roughly in the 60 to even 90 minutes before we go to sleep, even if it doesn't, some people aren't affected by the, the delayed onset of sleep. Some people have no qualms falling asleep even if they've been on a device. But what we now know is that it's the quality of their sleep if they have been on a device in that 60 to 90 minutes before they go to sleep. The duration of their deep and REM sleep 
stages of the sleep cycle is often much shorter. So if you wear a fitness tracker, um, you know, or an aura ring, something that, that tracks your sleep, you may notice this particular trend. Now, this is critical. You know, as you said, one of our most basic biological needs is sleep. And in the book, I talk about how as humans, we have something I call our HOS, our human operating system. And we are bound by some biological constraints. Unfortunately, as humans, our brains and bodies have not evolved to cope without sleep. They have not evolved to, to go without human connection and without um, sunlight and without being physically active, all of these basic needs. But our tech habits, as you said, are really shaping all of these and the cascading consequences, I believe, are quite pronounced. This is why I think, you know, two things that we're, we're really seeing as a, as a direct ramification of not getting enough sleep. One is that our capacity to focus and pay attention is diminished. Now, we're quick to say it's the ping of emails and it's the team's notification. Absolutely, they're contributing, but a tired brain cannot focus. Um, I think it's having a huge impact on our focus. And the second byproduct of not getting good quality and or quantity of sleep is that not only does it affect our focus, it has a huge impact on our mental health. We are seeing a real decline in, in adolescent and adults' mental health. And I most certainly think that it is our sleep that is a contributing factor to that. One of the questions I was going to ask, and this may be the answer to the question I was going to ask you in your book, you said, uh, we can't outperform our neurobiology. Now, I think I know what that means, but just for our listeners that might know, could you explain what that means? And maybe the last comment was the answer to it, I'm not sure. Just explain what that means. Yeah, so I believe that as humans, we have some biological constraints. We have a biological blueprint that we have to adhere to. We have some basic human needs, physical and psychological needs, that have to be met in order for us to perform or in order for us basically to live. And so I think we need to start living in alignment with those neurobiological needs. So what does our brain and our body need to perform, to achieve, to, to, to live? And it's those basic mechanisms, as I've said, connection, um, sunlight, physical movement, sleep, um, good quality nutrition, um, breathing. But all of those domains are being shaped by screens, even the way we breathe. You may recall, Pete, in the book, I talk about a condition called email apnea. And it has been scientifically studied that when people go into their inboxes, they hold their breath, they dump a whole lot of cortisol, their heart rate accelerates, their pupils dilate, they are physiologically having a response to checking emails. Um, even the way we breathe when we're on our computers and our phones is changed. Um, we should sigh roughly every five minutes. As humans, we, we do it and we're often unaware that we're doing it while we're awake. Um, it's basically two inhalations through our nose and an exhalation through our mouth. And it's our bodies, one of our neurobiological control mechanisms that helps us manage our stress. So it's... And we do this, we should be doing it around every five minutes. Now, I'm not talking about the very melodramatic teenage side that's very overt. You will do this without anyone knowing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but when we're on our devices, we don't sigh anywhere near as much. What does this tell us? We're in a really heightened stress state. So this is happening in really overt ways, but also really, um, you know, subliminal and ways that we're not even really conscious of just yet. And so I think what we really need to do is match our HOS, our human operating system, which is that neurobiological need that we have as humans, to how we're going to use technology. That will be our sweet spot. Um, and that's what I'm really passionate about sharing. And thank you for doing so, because it's going to help 
you know, one parent, one child, one, as you say, screenager, which is a, is a lovely term. Um, <laughs> I'm fascinated to, to understand because I, I face, I think I, you might be facing the same challenges that I face in my work with your work is I'm going to guess that you're pretty busy right now. Not, not just with the launch of the book and all that publicity and publications and stuff, but the rise of everything digital. I'm going to guess you're pretty busy. Would that be right? It is, but I, and this may be semantics, but I try not to use the word busy. I, people often say, you so, must be so busy. I say, things are full. I have a full calendar, a okay. full heart and full hands. But yes, the oh, truth is, lovely things way, are busy. Lovely, lovely, lovely. I might nick that, Christy. That's a lovely Go way for it. It, it's I, I a think, real subtle difference, but it's powerful for me because for bit, me, busy conjures up, you know, being frantic and out of control. And yeah. for me, it, it's, yeah, but yeah, it's full slash busy. <laughs> well, I, 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 I don't know if you've read anything I've written. So what anyone whispers was seven years old last week and uh, I wrote about seven lessons I've learned. And this week it's seven lessons I haven't learned yet. One of the lessons I learned was when people ask me, are you busy? I say, I'm making progress. Mm. because not only is did they go trans derivational search okay whatever but it reminds me oh shit I need to get busy on the stuff that's important I need to be working on the stuff that's really important because if I can't say I'm making progress so I love that you know I've got a full diary full head and a full heart and a full hand the reason I'm asking is I'm going to guess that because your diary is full people are clamoring to have more knowledge about all these digital distractions, all of the things that you talk about. I'm interested, and it's a speculative guess I'm asking you to, 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 to share here. What do you reckon the implementation percentage is? So to be honest, um, and this is where I struggle, as an academic who knows how our brains operate, there is something called the forgetting curve. And the forgetting curve um, brutally tells us that after a keynote or after a masterclass or after a workshop, within about three days, we have retained roughly, if we're really good, possibly 30% of the content that we learned. So as somebody who gets invited to deliver a keynote or to deliver an off-site presentation or a one-off masterclass, I have concerns about the long-term impact of that because, as you said, is it just knowledge or where's the implementation? So we've developed a whole lot of things to counter that, um, not from a revenue perspective, but because for me, actually taking the knowledge and using it is the real difference. I love getting emails, believe it or not, not all emails, um, but emails from people or DMs from people saying, look, I've tried this and it worked, or I cannot believe how much this made a difference. To me, that lights me up. That That's what we have to do. So we have got some other follow-up resources that we offer, um, but the key that I'm seeing at the moment with really forward-thinking organisations is that the organisations who I'm doing work with beyond the keynote, so certainly going in and sharing knowledge, But what we're finding is that to create long-term sustainable changes, organisations have to establish what I call their digital guardrails. And these are, this is not a policy. This is not a document that sort of lives on your hard drive that no one ever refers to. This is a co-established, so it's co-created across a team or across an organisation. But these are the digital norms, practices and principles that underpin how we will use the plethora of digital tools that are now integral to hybrid, remote, 
new ways of working. So this is coming up with some parameters around, you know, do we have cameras on or cameras off on, on video calls? Um, when do you set your focus hours? How quickly do you need to respond to an internal versus an external email? Um, is it okay to send or do you just schedule emails out of hours? Um, do you have a communication escalation plan so that if there is a time-sensitive, urgent, critical issue that you need to communicate with your colleagues, What's the one mode through which that will be communicated? And this is where we get traction because if we have people just listening to a seminar or a keynote and going off on their own and saying, these are some of the habits I want to put in place, it is near impossible to embed those habits when your leader is emailing you at three o'clock on a Sunday, when your colleagues are sending the Teams chats at 11 o'clock at night and everybody's replying. And so coming up with these co-established guardrails, I believe, is the critical point of difference. Some people are calling them team agreements. Some are calling them sort of a digital charter. I don't mind what you call them, so long as your organisation creates them. And it's not something that the HR team develops. It's not something that the SUE seat develops and, and pushes out. It has to be co-established um, across the organisation and we need leaders to implement it. That's the really critical point of difference. So it will will result in change if we do that along with the, the keynotes and the workshops, I believe. I, I believe that too. And it's the, it's the same in my work. And it's frustrating as hell when you get insight in the room. They go, oh, Pete, Christy, that's wonderful. And six months later, oh, yeah, I've kind of fallen off the wagon a bit. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. More of a philosophical question then. I don't know if you know a chap called uh, Alex Hormozzi. He's a pretty well-known global marketeer. Um, yes. One of the tweets that he said, uh, put out recently was, we don't have information overload, question mark. We have implementation underload, mm. which is exactly what you and I are talking about. Yep. Um, philosophically, and you know, I'm, I'm interested in what you think here, why do you think there's more of a clamour to know than to implement? I think without a doubt, consuming information is far easier than yeah. taking the awkward, clunky, cumbersome steps to actually then go and implement and make change. You know, humans, we're habitual. We look for the path of least resistance. And if that embedded, albeit unhealthy habit has the entrenched pathway, we stick to that. Um, I think the other reason is that we now have, and I would counter the argument that we don't have too much information. I think we do. I, in the book, I talk about infobesity. And it's this idea that we are, it's a good term, isn't it? <laughs> that we, we are being constantly digitally bombarded with information. And the part of our brain, the hippocampus, that's basically our memory center, it has not evolved to get any bigger. So we're not actually able to cope with more information. But what's happening today is that we are being presented with really consumable snack-sized bits of information and I think that the artificial intelligence is so accurate now that the Google recommendation algorithm knows exactly what content or what information you would be interested in based on your previous viewing online history. So we're getting served up, I think, shorter bits of information, more concise bits of information, but certainly a greater volume of it. But again, I think we're then really crappy at making the yeah. awkward steps to implement that change. Yeah. And I would argue that's the same in all aspects of our life, relationship, yeah. mindset, parenting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's almost like we're stuck with this human condition. Yeah. And 
We also, as our brains have evolved, to, to we like novelty. So we like new things. So if I can hear something, a new twist on something or a new podcast or a, a new TikTok clip or an Instagram post, then we we crave that that perceived sense. I would challenge whether it really is novelty or whether it's just sort of re- revamped, revised content delivered in a different way. But exactly. the online world, again, meets that need because all of a sudden that's new, whereas going back to the habit that you know you should be implementing, but it's probably very monotonous. <laughs> You're not going to get that sense of novelty and newness that consuming yep. more information would give you. So it's a vicious cycle, to be honest. It is. It is. Now, please indulge me. Um, I've been fascinated by this. So I'm, I'm now interested for someone who's immersed in this, what you think. Um, for, for those that are listening that haven't, I don't know if you've been living in a box for the last few months, but someone called Chat GPT came out last year. Um, first platform to get a million users like super fast. And in the last couple of weeks, I think it is now chat GPT-4 is on the market, which is a version of artificial intelligence is just extraordinary. And it's only just started. And every time one somebody uses it, it gets better and better and better. So it's it's limitless, you could argue. I'm interested in, first of all, do you have a position on it? Do you have a view on it? Are you excited by it? Are you terrified by it? Can I be honest and say, and this is not just to sit on the fence, I'm equal parts excited as I am terrified. Um, (laughs) From a user's perspective, the idea of repurposing content, especially someone who's just written a book, the idea that I could use ChatGPT to create a whole lot of social media content without hugely onerous on my time, that really excites me. The fact that it could be a springboard to create content, be that keynote content or a, a blog post or some research that it could congregate or, or aggregate, I should say, that information, that part excites me. The other part that that concerns me is how that information could be misused, you know, especially with students. You know, do we have the critical literacy skills to ascertain what may be perhaps inaccurate information? And given that ChatGPT, the algorithm, works on the belief of of, it, it, it scans and sources published content, well, where is the verification process? Where is the credibility and reliability in what it's determining? So for me, that perspective concerns me, but I'm also recognizing it's not going to go away. I saw Microsoft last week, like last week, have released, is it Copilot, their new yeah. workplace AI? Yeah, yeah. mind-blowing what it, it can potentially do. But again, like any technology, I often say it's only as good as the person driving it. So I I don't think this is going to supersede or replace us as humans, but it's going to require, I think, way more critical literacy skills um, and a different set of skills that we need to develop as humans because, again, we need to take back control of the technology. So for me, it's another tool in the toolkit, but it will not be the only thing I'll be relying on. Someone I've watched and listened to suggested um, things like chat GPT won't take your job, but someone who uses it really well will. Yeah, I love that. And yeah, great. And I love that distinction yeah. because it's just a tool. Someone who's immersed in it, who knows they use it and not use it, is probably going to be at a significant advantage compared totally. to those who don't use any of the technology tools. Yeah. 
Yeah, and like any, yeah, like any tool, it's an amplifier. So if you've got <laughs> really, you know, if you've got good knowledge, if you've got good skills, then this can certainly be a skill, skill or a tool that will help you amplify that. But if there's some gaps in your knowledge or some, some weaknesses in your skills, without the perception to recognise that, I think it could be potentially a dangerous tool. I guess for me, it's the human vetting. We still need to step yeah. in and verify and check. Um, uh, uh, for me, as somebody who will potentially start using it in her business, it's, you know, does it have my tone? Have I lost Christy in what this tool has created? Yeah. So, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, definitely equal parts exciting and terrified, if I'm really yeah. honest. Yeah. Uh, look, I've got a question for you. You might not be able to answer. I'm not sure. I, I'm, I'm worried about this for me, but even more so for my kids and, you know, the kids as they come through. Almost at the ev end of every tweet or every recommendation, there's DYOR, right? Do your own research. Now, I get that, but where do I go? Because of yeah. ChatGPT4, of deep fake videos, how can I possibly, I, I'm not skilled enough to know whether this is the real Christie on screen now yeah. that I'm chatting to, yeah. or is it a robot? Where do you go to DYOR? I don't know if I've got the answer. That's something I have also been pondering. Um, my my yeah, my eldest son has just started high school and the, the type of rigour, the academic rigour behind his assessments is is intense. And for him, you know, everything's Googleable. Like it, Google has become a verb. I'll just Google it. Yes. And for me, it's saying, hang on, how do we know this is a, a trustworthy source? And I think this is going to become much harder. Um, it, I don't have an answer for this. This is something for me uh, as, a, as a researcher, I'm still lucky enough to have access to peer-reviewed journal articles and, you know, trusted, although they're online now, but that, which is great, but trusted sources. Kids at a, 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 definitely in a, in a school setting aren't necessarily even going to have access to journal articles where that verification process is. So I don't know what the answer is there. Um, how do we teach kids? You know, even URLs are easy to doctor these days. You know, this is why we've got so many scams from our perceived government agencies and banks because it's so easy to clone a URL and do these sorts of tricks. So I don't know if I have an answer there. It is something I think schools are going to have to question and something that universities most certainly are grappling with at the moment. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, you know, we, I, I think we must have mentioned this last time. I was a teacher as well. Um, there you go. Um, and I probably still am in some degree, which you probably are to some yeah, degree. Totally. Um, I, I think about a lot of the responses from the schools and the universities right now, which is a little bit to help. We don't know what's happening. So we're going to ban it. We're just going to ban GPT-4. Um, and yet the kids will be using it outside school anyway. Yeah. Somebody will be using it. And it's a bit like, you know, the HSC in Australia for for six years of high school, they do computer generated tasks and essays and then they write for their exam. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So where was I going with this? I'm interested if you, again, philosophical question with the doubling and obviously the acceleration of artificial intelligence. I, 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 and I, I Partly my DYOR question. I don't know if this was real or not, but it feels like it was real. Somebody advertised for a kill switch engineer for ChatGPT4, meaning somebody to sit on the sidelines just in case the day comes when it becomes sentient and it becomes more intelligent than humans to just switch the whole damn thing off. 
Which I thought was, even if it's just a meme, that's a bloody very worthwhile meme because that could be, you know, worse things could have happened. D do you believe that's possible? Could could the machines become sentient? Oh, look, I think possible. Oh, I, I wouldn't doubt. I think this technology is growing and evolving at such rapid rates yeah. um, that it would not surprise me if we get to a point soon. But again, this is why I think that we, we can't let the technology control us. We have to, I think, have some human interaction. We need some human vetting. Um, we need to put in place some controls and mechanisms so we don't lose touch of what it's like to be humans and have the tech um, dictate and determine. You know, we're seeing this with young people with the rise of instant video platforms like TikTok. The reason they've become so popular is that the algorithm knows precisely what content those individual users will be interested in. So they get served up bespoke content based on their viewing history, based on their socio-demographic profile. Um, so it, it's certainly on the cusp of already being possibly more intelligent than what we are. But again, I think we need to put some controls and mechanisms in place so it doesn't take over. How we do that, I don't know. Please don't ask me that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, well, let me let me make it a little bit lighter then and come back up a little bit. Um, are you familiar with the OneSec app? Remind me. I, I hadn't come across it before, but just as I was reading your book, I did a little bit of research and I haven't explored it, so I'd be interested in what you think. So OneSec is an app that you can, uh, you probably have to pay for it, it's probably a free version, you have to pay for it, where it can attach to any of your social media uh, platforms or any website. And the minute you click on Facebook, TikTok, it comes up with, take a second, breathe, and you can prompt what you want to do before you dive into the app. Oh, I like it. Which I thought was brilliant. I like it. No, I have so not heard you of can, it. You can, do you want to do this? Do you really want to do this? Or yeah. are you just bored? Do you really want to? So it gives you this momentary pause, you know, the, 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 the space between the event and the response. Yes. And I hadn't come across it before. I just wonder if you'd come across it. I haven't, but I do love that because one of the things I talk about in the book is how technology has become frictionless. It's so easy for us, you know, not even, we don't even have to enter a passcode now. If you've got facial recognition, you can hold your phone up and off you go into the digital vortex. So I often talk about creating more friction. You know, how can we put some intermediary steps in so we don't just sort of, you know, we unlock our phone to make a phone call or check the weather, but we go down and check our emails. We check a sports report or we go off checking social media. And it's so easy. It's such a slippery slope. Um, so I really like that idea of encouraging us, you know, to, to, to I guess it's almost like a psychological nudge saying, do you really want to do this? Yes, um, it is. Hugh Van Kylenberg from the Resilience Project talks about putting apps in a folder on your yeah. phone. So your tech temptations, I often say, put them off, take them off your home screen. You know, don't have your digital weaknesses on that pole position on the home screen of your phone. But Hugh suggests taking it one step further and putting them in a folder, possibly five screens across, and calling it things I'll later regret. So every time you go into TikTok or Snapchat or whatever your weakness is, your digital Achilles heel, you get that pang of guilt. I think one sec would have a similar effect, um, but again, without those other intermediary steps that we might need. So I like it. I'm going to have a look at that after we've yeah, talked today. It's, it's literally something sort of one or U-N-E, S-E-C. Got it. And I just thought it was a great example of just that psychological nudge, that prompt, get us back yeah. conscious, go, no, nah, I don't need to do this. Because I yeah. think what, 
and I'm guilty of this massively, we've forgotten how to be bored. Oh, yes, and please. There is a reference in your book to this something. We're more, we're more likely to administer a, a, a shock <laughs> to ourselves than be with our own thoughts. Yeah, yeah, what? being... Yeah, well, being idle with our thoughts, I believe, is absolutely critical. This is where ideation happens. This is where we solve complex problems. You know, I don't know about you, Pete, but I have never come up with a great idea in my an Excel spreadsheet or in my inbox. My great ideas come when I'm swimming, when I'm going for a run, when I'm on holidays with no Wi-Fi, when I'm floating in the ocean. Yeah. Um, and we enter what neuroscientists call the default mode network. We, we daydream, but we have become so accustomed to filling every bit of white space with our screens. You know, we wait for our coffee and we pick up our phones. We, we wait for our kids out the front of school and we pick up our phones. We wait in the doctor's surgery. So those pop of white space that we used to have where we let our mind meander, where we daydream, we now fill that void all the time. And the study you're referring to had adults sit in a room and say, look, just be bored for 10 to 15 minutes. They had to prematurely end the study because the adults showed signs of psychological distress. They couldn't handle being bored for 15 minutes. They went back to their ethics committee and said, look, in iteration two, could we give the adult participants the option of self-administering a an electric shock in lieu of being bored. And it was 67% of males and 24, 25% of females gave themselves an electric shock in lieu of being bored. We have literally lost the art of being bored as humans. And I think it's not only critical for ideation and problem solving, but it's critical for our well-being. And for young people, I think this problem is even more amplified because how do you know what excites you, what terrifies you, what interests you if you are never alone with yourself? I, I just, this is, I think, a really important skill that we have to cultivate. I totally agree. Uh, when you express it like that, Christy, it's it's making me feel a little bit overwhelmed and go, God, what <laughs> such a mountain to climb, you know, not just in our jobs, but as husbands and wives and sons and daughters and mothers and fathers and mates and colleagues. It's like, oh, geez, there's just so much pushing against what we intuitively know is not the human thing. It's not connection. It's not bringing us closer. We're, we're, what was it? Someone said to me, we're not the exact, we're closer but further away than we've ever been before. Yeah. I often use the, the analogy that we're connected, but we're disconnected. We're so, now together, but alone. Yeah. And that, you know, and as I keep saying, you know, it's not going away. It is here to stay. So how can we harness it? You know, it, it, today we the positive potential is that you and I can have this conversation, although we could have done it in a coffee shop, but no one would have had the opportunity to listen to it except for the people nearby. Um, but this is where I think we need to say, well, what can we do? What are the benefits? What are the affordances? What are the rich opportunities? How can we capitalise on those? But at the same time, how can we mitigate the pitfalls? What can we put in place to stop us using the tech in a really detrimental way because I believe all tech whether it's professional personal tech has been engineered in many instances not all but in many instances to rob us of our two most important resources as humans our time and our attention and we don't get either of those things back and so like I am just I'm really passionate I hope this comes across about us finding realistic solutions um, that allow us to certainly use the tech but do so in a way that will help us rather than harm us because I don't want us to get to the end of our life and look back and think, 
you know, I was tethered to my phone all of the time. I wished I'd spent less time on social media. I wished I'd been more connected with my partner, with my aging parents, with my kids. And I think we're going to start seeing that. I think we will. Well, we already are. I share a little story in the book. Yeah, many people mask it. Yeah. Many people mask it. Um, Christy, two questions. One, a little bit of a confession, if you're happy to share. Um, given all you know, what's what's a digital habit you've managed to change, right, that was kind of harmful, but also what's one that you haven't yet been able to change, if you're willing to, to share? Okay, so I'll start with the one I'm not really good at because people will call me out. <laughs> so I talk talk about trying not to bookend our day with technology. Now, I'm really good in the morning. I've got a, a really great morning routine. I'm an early bird, so I'm up early. And I, it's as a mum of three three boys, I fiercely protect my morning routine. It's my sanctuary, my mental respite. So I really don't have many qualms avoiding tech first thing in the morning. I will admit my Achilles heel is still using technology at night. Now, I, I, it's, I try to switch off at least half an hour, 45 minutes. I know it should be an hour, but I'm still the person and I justify it under the guise of work. You know, I need to check social media because I think I posted something or I scheduled something today or I've got yes. to check emails because I don't have anyone manning my inbox and there could yeah. be something of, of urgency. So I try, if I am going to fail at my own rules, um, I try to wear blue light blocking glasses. I try and do something restorative afterwards. Um, and I also don't beat myself up knowing I'm not perfect at this. So that's definitely a, a failing. The biggest thing that's had the most monumental impact on my life was determining my chronotype. So our chronotype is our um biologically determined pattern of when we're most alert and focused in the day. And it also sort of dictates when we naturally would want to fall asleep. So we usually fall into three categories. I'm the early bird. I am the lion. I'm up early. I fire on all cylinders. I have tried where possible. And again, I don't get this right all the time. And none of my days are sort of a perfect embodiment of what this should look like. But where possible, I try to structure my day given that I'm mentally prime in the earlier hours of the day. So I get up, I have my morning routine, I do a tiny bit of work before I do some exercise. And then those first few hours, once I've got kids to school and childcare, I try to fiercely build a fortress around my focus. I, I try not to have alerts and notifications, disabled alerts and notifications. Um, I, I, fiercely protect my calendar so I'm not having meetings early on in the morning if I can avoid it. So trying to structure my day and building that fortress around my focus, not for the whole day, but during those sort of prime times. Other people are um, bears and their energy peaks at a different time and some people are wolves, they're the night owls. So figuring out your chronotype and then being diligent about eliminating as many distractions as possible and structuring, I call it the contours of your day to work with your chronotype, has been a game changer. I noticed you're uh, you're almost a bit like Mark, Mark Wahlberg, who, believe, who I believe gets up at 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> your day at the back of your book is fascinating. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how many days a week, a month are actually like that. But I thought it was a great example. For those that are interested, you've got to get the book to find out. <laughs> quite impressed with that analogy Mark Wahlberg I don't look like Mark Wahlberg and I'm not quite 2.30 I will say not quite 2.30 but um 
Yeah, and the reason I included that, you know, I I actually left that part of the book out and it came to me saying to the, and I contacted the publisher at the very last minute saying, I want to include a realistic example um, because people need to see what this really looks like. You know, I'm a mum to three young children and I have tried to build a business that works for me in my stage of life um, as best I can around that. And so I just wanted to provide a, a concrete example so that people have got something to sink their teeth into or hook onto so that we can say, look, my day won't look like this. And to be honest, my day doesn't always look like that. You know, ideally reading it giggling, going, yeah, not not every day, I'm sure. Definitely not every day. But where I can, that that's sort of the goal I'm aiming towards. And they're the habits that I know will work for me and my context. And I think that's the trick. If we want to make habits stick, we have to figure out what's attainable and what we will realistically stick to given our context, our you know, even your work responsibilities. For some people, not being contactable early in the morning could be diabolical if your role is contingent upon, you know, maybe your customer service role. So there are some nuances, but I think it's important to give people some sort of scaffold. I agree. Uh, Christy, I'm assuming if people are interested in understanding more about chronotypes, there's some resources in your website that we can point them to if they're interested in finding out whether a bear, lion or a dolphin or what's that, the other one? Bear, lion, dolphin and... Wolf. Wolf. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And please, in the book, if you purchase the book, you get a um, a whole lot of resources. And on the resource page, you get access to a free chronotype assessment and a structured work schedule based on your chronotype as well. Yeah. If you're listening, buy the book. You could save someone's life. (laughs) I'm not not kidding. You could save someone's life. Um, Christy, I'm really conscious of time. I could keep talking about this forever, but I'm conscious of your time. Um, maybe a last question for me, there may be some lightness to finish. I could ask this question in any context. Um, and I know you've said in, in your bit you've got 36 micro habits. Uh, I'm going to ask it in the context of a small business owner, right? Because that's mm-hmm. kind of the context we've connected with so far. I could ask yep. it as a husband, as a father, as a son, as a mate, you know, any different context. So I know the answers might be different. Um, But I'd be interested in your views as a small business owner, what would be the top three micro habits that I could deploy that you think would make the biggest difference for my business? I think definitely determining your team or team's um, dominant chronotype. So structuring your team's cadences around that. So if you've got mainly people who are early birds, they fire on all cylinders in the morning, then avoid having team meetings in that stage of the day. So determining dominant chronotypes and and work rhythms. Um, I think the second strategy is managing notifications. Notifications stress our brains and put a massive dent in productivity. And they're rife today. It's not just email notifications today, it's Teams or Slack notifications, it's calendar reminders. So my three golden rules with notifications is one, turn off all non-essential notifications. Two, bundle or batch your notifications. You can now nominate what time or times of the day you want your team's notifications or your WhatsApp notifications coming to you rather than them dribbling in. And number three is to create VIP lists. So when you put on focus mode or do not disturb mode, everybody else gets blocked apart from those critical people on your do not disturb list. And my third one, um, it's kind of related to the other two, is to not nibble on our inboxes throughout the day. Research tells us, and again, there are nuances here and and depending on your role, but for most knowledge workers, we should only be checking emails two to four times per day. 
that's what the, the research tells us is sort of an optimal amount to sort of counteract that FOMO that we struggle with, you know, what am I missing out on, but also to stop the constantly being distracted by it. So they would be my top three chronotype um, notifications and emails two to four times a day. Thank you. I have I have implemented the second two, which is pretty good. I've felt for the benefit of that. I, I do have another question. Go um, for it. It, was there anything you kept out of the book because it was too edgy? Oh, that's good. That's I've not been asked that. Um, I don't think I did. I, I, my, the publisher was very receptive to what um, I included. I don't think there was anything. There were there was things cut out just because of volume, not because it was too controversial. Um, as any author knows, that's the bane of your existence. What you think is really important when you start to cull things I falls know. by the wayside. Um, no, I don't. I don't think there there was. Um, they were quite receptive to what I wanted to include. So I'm going to say no. Unfortunately, that's a boring answer. <laughs> Maybe book number two. Possibly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Christy, uh, thank you so much. I, I feel very um, privileged and humbled that I get the the chance to chat to you one on one. Right. You know, we could probably bump into each other down the local village shops, but professionally, I get the chance to do this because I, I'm being selfish in terms of it has a big impact on me. And I know it's got a big impact on the people you speak with and the people I speak with and, and not just our immediate family and friends, which are dear to us both. But this digital, I don't know what the right word is, ubiquitousness is, it's, it's a blessing and mainly a curse. Yeah. And we're all, we're coming at it from a different perspective. And I'm so grateful that you've, one, written the book. If you're listening and you're watching, get the book, right? Buy 10, give it to nine other people. Um, thank you so much for your time and your insights. Um, it's been a pleasure yet again speaking to you. Um, and uh, good luck with your nap in the afternoon. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it it's happening today. <laughs> I appreciate your time and your very kind words, Pete. Thank you. You're welcome.